You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn East. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Happy Father's Day. We're hoping to move quick before the the weather comes in. I'm really glad you're here. Before we jump in, I did want to let you know that there'll be more details coming this week, but our plan is to start moving our services inside in the month of July. Um, We'll have service times and things like that in the coming this week, but we want to let you know. So next week will be our last week of sojourn on the lawn. We are looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians, and last week we talked about this letter, and in it, Paul is telling us holding forth a vision of what it means to live a life that's worthy of the gospel, and not just as individuals, but what it looks like to be a church that's living worthy of the gospel of Christ. And today we're going to look at four verses at the beginning of chapter two. And if you're able and you want, I want to encourage you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Paul writes with this vision of being a worthy people in a worthy church. He says, so in light of this, if there is any encouragement in Christ— any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let me pray. Father, as we come to your word, we thank you for for giving us this time together. Thank you for holding the weather back. And I pray that as we dive into your word, knowing your spirit is at work in our midst and your word is powerful, I pray that you might spark something in our imaginations. You might give us a vision of a life and of a community that's greater than what we currently have. And that through our shared life, you might get glory and a whole lot of good might be done for you and for this world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So here, you may be seated. Here in chapter 2, Paul lays out his big request, and he starts with a bit of rhetorical flourish. He says, if, if you've ever been encouraged by Christ, if you've ever been encouraged that he endured the cross to save you from your sins, if you've ever been comforted by the love of the Father, knowing that he loves you as you are, he loves you in spite of who you are, and he's committed to you, if you've ever shared in true fellowship with other believers through the Spirit, if you've ever experienced mercy or tenderness or compassion. Paul's saying if you've ever had any experience that matches up with the Christian life, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. seems to be pretty clear what Paul is saying. If you've ever tasted the joys of Christ and his salvation, then live in unity with one another. Be in full accord. Have one mind, one spirit. You know, as a dad, there are a few things better than when my kids are really getting along with one another. 
And I don't just mean an absence of conflict. An, an absence of conflict. I mean when they're playing a game or they're engaged in some project, and they're all in it together, locked arms. They're encouraging one another, cheering one another on. Whenever my wife sees that, she always says they're heart melters right now. They're melting my heart watching them lock arms to accomplish whatever it is. And Paul, right here, he's like a father. He's saying, if you really want to, you want to bring me joy. Live into your God-given, blood-bought, spirit-secured unity. For Paul, there's no greater joy than watching God's people live as God's people and live into that vision. Watching them, all the different members of the body coming together in coordination like Tiger Woods in his prime. It's beautiful and it's powerful. And this is his passion and it's, it's his longing. It's his hope for the church. And I think most of us, we share that desire for the church as well. You know, if you, you hang around the church long enough, you, you encounter the paradox of the church, that the church at times is incredibly powerful, and at times the church can be downright pathetic. It's powerful. Last week we got to see baptisms. We got to see people cross over from death to life. It's powerful this week watching the food drive and watching you guys pulling through the parking lot for three days, dropping off all sorts of resources for people who need them. The church, when it comes together in coordination, is powerful, but, but the church can also be really pathetic. It can be disappointing. It can be frustrating. What's the difference? I think one of the main differences is that when a church is walking in power, they're walking in a unity like Paul's talking about here. That unity is where we find our strength. And unity is not something we talk about a lot in the church. I mean, I am because we're preaching through Philippians. But in the American church, we talk a lot more about mission or evangelism or social engagement or social issues. Unity in the church, unity among God's people, it always falls to the bottom of the list or to the second page. But for Paul, he's saying it's number one. Be unified and amazing things will happen. So how do we grow in unity? Paul tells us in verse 3, he says, and this is our memory verse for this week. I want to encourage you to memorize it. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count one another's, count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, Paul, he unlocks the key to unity in the church. I mean, we have unity. It's already ours because of the finished work of Christ, the Spirit. But he says, if you want to live into that and experience what is true, the path to true unity is found through humility. The secret to unity in the church is humility among the individual members. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In his book, Life Together, which I'll reference a few times this morning, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he speaks to how selfish ambition and conceit destroy community, how the opposite of humility, how pride works its way into the church. And he does so by pointing to a very famous passage from Luke 9, 46, where the disciples are talking, and Luke tells us that an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. 
And what Bonhoeffer says basically is that one of the most persistent and pernicious ways that sin shows up in the church is because we're all at some level wrestling with this question. Who among us is the greatest? Who's the wisest? Who's the most holy? Maybe who's the most generous? Or even who's the most gracious? And who's the most forgiving? Who does God love the most? We all have this sense that there's a level of competition between us. And we're striving. Bonhoeffer writes, he says, No Christian community ever comes together without this thought immediately emerging as a seed of discord. At the very beginning of Christian fellowship, there is engendered an invisible, often unconscious, life and death contest. An argument arose among them. He says, this is enough to destroy a fellowship. And the reason it destroys a fellowship is because if, if we're trying to claim our rights and we're trying to bring honor and glory to ourselves, then we trample on one another. We step on one another in an effort to climb higher and higher. And Paul He's calling us to a better way where instead of trampling on people to make a name for ourselves, he calls us to lift one another up. Instead of striving against one another, he calls us to start striving for one another. And that's where in verse 3, the second half, it's what he's getting at when he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Instead of chasing after glory and pride and honor for yourself, he says, you need to learn to flip the script. Now, remember, Paul, he's writing to people in Philippi. Philippi, uh, the population there, there were a lot of military veterans. And rank and class and file meant an awful lot to them. Who was your superior meant an awful lot to them. And Paul is saying, flip the script. Treat everyone as your superior and you will find unity. That's true biblical humil humility. Humility... Oftentimes it gets, we understand humility as being insecurity or timidity or even self-hatred. But that's not what true humility is in the Bible. Humility in the Bible, as Lewis memorably put it, he said, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not so much how you think about yourself, it's how you think about others. John Dixon, he writes, he says, humility is about redirecting your powers, whether physical intellectual, financial, or structural for the sake of others. Humility is more about how I treat others than how I think about myself. Humility is more about how I treat others than it is how I think about myself. And so Paul, he's calling us to this other-centeredness, this other honoring way of life. He's not calling us to berate ourselves or to just constantly beat ourselves up. He's calling us to something different. He's saying, just stop thinking about yourself so much and start thinking about other people. Direct your focus away from yourself and put it on other people. Now, that's intriguing to me. It's challenging for me. But what does this actually look like in our day-to-day -day lives? Sometimes when we talk about humility in the church, it remains an abstraction, this wonderful ideal that we're all supposed to live up to, but we never actually bring it down into the day-to-day -day aspects of our lives through 
you've got kids, wrangling your kids, if you're married, wrangling with your spouse, with your friends at work, what does it mean to walk in humility? Well, in that book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer, he holds forth seven different calls. He calls them ministries. And we're not going to look at all seven of them. We're going to look at two. But these are two practical ways we actually can live into this calling to consider others more significant than ourselves. The first one, Bonhoeffer, he calls it the ministry of listening. Very practical level. One way you can count and treat others with honor, treat them as more significant than yourself, is you listen to them. I mean, really listen to them. I think one of the reasons we in the American church struggle to live into unity is because we don't know how to listen well. So often our listening and you guys know how true this is. It's impatient, it's inattentive, it's presumptive. Instead of listening to other people, we're actually listening for the opening where we can step in and offer our thoughts, correct them, or maybe pull out of the conversation, trying to find our way in and out. Generally speaking, Christians were a lot better at talking and proclaiming and rebuking and exhorting than we are at listening. For some reason, there are a lot of believers who think that talking and proclaiming is, is you know, a more holy endeavor than listening is. But hear what Bonhoeffer writes. He says, the first service that one owes to others in the church consists in listening to them. Just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for one another is learning to listen to them. It is God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but he also lends his ear. So it is God's work that we do for one another when we learn to listen to each other. We all are wa watching on the news and we're seeing the divisions in our society. And so much of it's because people are shouting at each other and shouting over each other. Same, the same phenomenon happens in the church. And Bonhoeffer is here saying, stop, learn to listen well before you engage. And I think we really, we underestimate the value of listening well. David Osberger writes, he says, being heard, love this quote, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. So one of the first, most obvious ways we can count others more significant than ourselves is by listening well. Listening, like we talked about last week, with generosity, thinking the best of them, and with curiosity. Curiosity, believing, maybe I can learn something from them. I will learn something from them when I listen. Bonhoeffer, he said, it's only when we listen with the ears of God that we are then able to truly speak the word of God to one another. So the first practical thing is listening well. And I know, because I know people, I know you're thinking right now, I sure hope my boss hears this, or I sure hope my wife is listening, or probably more realistically, my husband is listening right now, or my kids are listening. But don't turn it on other people. Do you listen? Is there a greater way that you can demonstrate the honor of another than truly listening to them? 
the second one and the last one that we're going to look at. Bonhoeffer calls it the ministry of holding one's tongue. And I love the name of that one. He says, this is, I mean, it's the flip side of listening well. It's refusing to speak negatively about our brothers and sisters. And this just makes sense. If, if humility is refocusing our energy to lift others up with honor, then it just makes sense that a lot of times we need to hold our tongues. Bonhoeffer, he actually says that in every church there ought to be an agreed-upon rule and an understanding, and to quote him, that prohibits each individual from saying much that occurs to them. I love that quote. Like, we're all going to put hands in together and say, we're all going to think a lot of things, and we're not going to say most of what we're thinking a lot of the time. That's how we honor. We all have thoughts, judgments, and, you know, and in the church, the seemingly more holy concerns about other people. We make assumptions. We jump to conclusions. We treat people or, or we mark people as enemies, and then we start collecting evidence against them. And it's bad enough for us to be doing that in our mind, but it's downright destructive when that creeps into the church and it comes out of our mouths. James says the tongue is like a fire, and it can set an entire forest ablaze. It's destructive not just to the other individual, but to community, because you got to pick sides, and it destroys our common unity. You know, one of the things that's been interesting to me over the last three months, there are a lot of conspiracy theories floating around. Any of you guys big into conspiracy theories? I'm not going to make fun of you if you are. No one. Okay, there's a few, right? It's like we got conspiracy theories about 5G and the connection between COVID and 5G or the World Health Organization or Bill Gates or George Soros. And, you know, I don't really have much to say about those conspiracy theories. I do want to say that as Christians, there's a bigger conspiracy theory that's actually not a theory at all. It's a reality. And that reality is that we have a supernatural enemy whose solitary goal is to destroy Christ's church and all of us along with it. That's not a theory. You don't have to connect some dots in a YouTube video. It's very clear in God's word. We have an enemy who's actively at work trying to destroy the church. Throughout the scriptures, he's called the accuser of the saints, the slanderer. And if we don't know how to step into this ministry that Bonhoeffer calls holding one's tongue, when we speak carelessly, maliciously about others, we're doing his work for him. It's like we're just pouring gasoline, waiting for a spark to ignite. This is why Paul in Ephesians 4, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And in a day where gossip and slander and slamming others, especially online, because I think that the ministry of holding one's tongue, it actually is the ministry of holding one's social media in check as well. And in a day where we gossip, we slander, we celebrate dunking on people publicly, I think holding one's tongue is a revolutionary act. It's a prophetic act. It points to a different way. Bonhoeffer lists other things, and I really encourage you to read the book. He calls, talks about the, the ministry of helpfulness, of bearing burdens, of pro, proclaiming forgiveness, 
And it's one of those chapters that as you're reading it, it's challenging and it's convicting. But if you've been following Christ for any measure of time, it's not new information. You don't read him saying you need to offer forgiveness thinking, man, that's so true. I didn't know that that was part of the Christian life. Like you, you know it. It's not challenging and that it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And our problem is not that we lack information. The problem is that counting others as more significant than ourselves is really hard work. I don't want to be too self-revealing, but this is right up there for me of most challenging things Paul has said. Day in and day out, consider everyone you encounter as more significant than yourself. This requires us to make sacrifices, overlook offenses, requires us to relinquish our rights. It requires us to, to not defend ourselves at times. And I think the only way, the extent to which we will do these kinds of things willingly, consistently, at an instinctual level, it's all dependent upon how well we know both the depths of our sin and the wonders of God's grace. Bonhoeffer, he said something like, only he who knows his sin uh, before the cross of Christ, something along these lines, It's only he who can gain a proper estimation of himself. It's only when we really know, like, the problem is, it's really not you or you or you. The problem is just as much me as it is anyone. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He describes himself as the least of the apostles. He's like, I'm I'm an apostle, but I'm not as good as these other guys. Ten years later, he's writing in Ephesians, and there he no longer says he's the least of the apostles. Instead, he describes himself as the least of all people. And then a few years after that, he writes a letter to Timothy in which he declares that he is the worst of all. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Over a matter of 15 years, Paul went from saying, yeah, I'm an apostle, not as good as these other guys, to... Now I'm the least of all God's people to finally come into a place where he said, of all the sinners, I'm the worst. Now, I don't think Paul was backsliding. We know Paul wasn't backsliding. It wasn't like his life just ran out of control. What happened is the natural progression of someone who's following Jesus, that the more we get to know him, the more clear and obvious our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, our own biases, our own weaknesses become clear. And I think for a lot of us, we don't know what to do when we feel that. I think for many people, being confronted with our weakness and our sin and our failings, it actually would lead us to to just trample that much harder on other people to justify ourselves. But Paul, it led him to receive it and to lift others up. And the reason why is because he knew the love of the Father And he knew the grace of Christ that was demonstrated on the cross. And he lived with this this mentality. Christ came to save sinners. I know you all are sinners, but I'm the worst. And that's what enabled Paul to live a life of radical humility and service. That's what enabled Paul to continue to plead for unity among God's people. And that's my prayer for us. As we come to the Lord's table... I don't know if there's any place where we are humbled more than we come to the table and we're reminded that Christ's body was broken for us and our sins. 
and his blood was shed on our behalf. If you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to get out your supplies, if you have them, to take part. Be reminded that the body of Christ was broken for you and the blood of Christ was shed for you and your sins. And be reminded that he didn't do this to, to rub your nose in it. He did this to redeem you and call you to a better, more beautiful life. And that's a life that's lived out in community where we seek to honor one another, where we don't just look to our own interests, but also to the interests of one another. Let's pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.